come back once again to principles of environmental toxicology. Well, they call it the D word, dioxin. In today's lecture, dioxin and related compounds, what we hope to do is actually give you a very, very in-depth briefing on this toxic and dioxin, some of the controversy associated with dioxin and dioxin risk assessment, and also some of the uh, 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 clinical aspects in terms of animals and humans and their exposure to these uh, uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon compounds. Uh, dioxin is associated with controversy. Its controversy lies primarily in the fact that it is an extraordinarily toxic compound when we examine its uh, potential for toxicosis in animal tests. Uh, this has linked its management in environmental exposure to a significant amount of expense. Uh, for example, a complex uh, multi-analysis dioxin residue screen uh, in an environmental exposure scenario might be as much as $2,000 worth of uh, analysis for one test. And so you can examine from this that uh, some sort of environmental risk assessment associated with dioxin is going to be an extraordinarily expensive experience. Expensive as well in terms of the stress, in terms of public health risk communication uh, to the general public. I was involved in the uh, late 1980s in a risk assessment in Northern California, a risk assessment from a, uh, a wood treatment plant that used uh, pentachlorophenol, PCP, uh, for wood post treatment. Uh, this plant burned down. Uh, dioxin is a combustion byproduct of chlorinated hydrocarbons. And there was great concern in the risk assessment community, uh, governmental agencies, and in some activist groups about the potential for dioxin contamination in the downwind plume from this fire. As it turns out in the follow-up analysis, there was some evidence of uh, fallout of dioxin and dioxin-like compounds. Uh, there was a series of uh, public health uh, discussions at local community centers. And there was a fair amount of, uh, I would say, public health outrage from the citizens in the local communities, uh, essentially feeling that they had somehow been poisoned by this very toxic compound. Uh, more recently uh, in the news, uh, you've seen uh, that uh, uh, about two years ago, the uh, president, uh, uh, presidential candidate and now president uh, uh, in the Ukrainian election, Viktor Yushchenko, uh, was poisoned uh, during his, I believe, 2003 campaign. Uh, his poisoning uh, by dioxin, it is presumed, uh, uh, caused the classic uh, high-dose, high-acute uh, dose uh, uh, chloracne, uh, a significant disfigurement uh, that we've reviewed in prior lectures and we'll review once again today. Our learning objectives here today, talking about dioxins and related compounds, we're going to try to explore uh, dioxins and dioxin-like compounds. We're going to try to do this by reviewing uh, what we know and, uh, in, in a certain degree, what we don't know uh, about dioxins, especially the impact on a molecular basis and how that relates to toxicosis. We're going to try to summarize the structural similarities of the cogeners of dioxins and related compounds, the furans, the benzofurans. Um, these are also uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons that have a similar toxicological profile. We're going to try as well to understand the TEF, or toxicity equivalency factor approach to dioxin risk assessment. 
this also involves the generation of what are referred to as toxicity equivalents. This helps us simplify uh, the wide range of compounds, these dioxin-like compounds, and their risk assessment. As it turns out, dioxin is not necessarily one compound. We have a TCDD, a tetrachlorodibenzodioxin compound, that is the reference compound. But in fact, as we'll see here shortly, there is a full range of potential sites of chlorination on the dioxin, dioxin backbone. And this allows us to have a more complex risk assessment because we are dealing with multiple compounds for dioxins, as well as we've introduced uh, for PCBs, pentachlorobiphenyls. We'll try to have you summarize the known processes and toxicological endpoints for dioxin exposure. Uh, in fact, this is uh, fairly timely because uh, the National Academy of Sciences uh, this past year has actually even charged the EPA to go back and look at uh, uh, non-cancer endpoints for dioxin and to do a more robust risk assessment, including the generation of reference doses, the same sort of reference doses that we talked about back when we were discussing pesticide risk assessment. We'll also try to have you describe this controversy in the data needs concerning low-level dioxin exposure. Uh, this is an active area, not scientific debate that dioxins are bad and they're toxic, but it's how bad and how toxic they are. At what sort of extrapolated levels, uh, when we get into these low-level, highly toxic compounds, uh, we're in the zone of extrapolation. And how do we use data that we have, data that we can produce, to do an adequate job of protecting public health while balancing against the data that we have and the relative uh, risk versus benefits uh, equation that we're going to use in public health risk assessment. We want you to be able to describe some of the observed effects and major findings in animal studies with dioxin or have you summarize the environmental and food sources of dioxins. Remember the lipophilic pathways throughout the environment and the human food chain. This is a lipophilic compound. It is going to circulate in the liposphere. It is going to be resident in our body fat. Well, have you summarized the known human risk estimations uh, for dioxins? What we will do, even though the EPA is charged uh, to reevaluate uh, even their most recent 2003 reevaluation, uh, we're going to have you at least address what is uh, now uh, EPA's findings, uh, which is the 2003 uh, findings in terms of dioxin risk assessment. We'll then uh, explore and summarize the uh, regulatory control approaches uh, for dioxin release. Obviously, if dioxins come about uh, via combustion processes, we're going to look at how we might control the release of these uh, highly toxic uh, compounds uh, on a uh, preventative basis in terms of managing uh, processes like municipal incineration. Well, we have arrived at a dioxin controversy primarily because of organochlorines and their industrial use. Now, I need to preface this that we have observed the ability of nature to synthesize dioxins. And this can happen in soil. This can happen through normal and natural processes uh, because, again, it is a chemical product. We do not use dioxins itself as a synthetic industrial compound. It is typically a byproduct. And it is a byproduct of various types of chemical reactions happening or acting on typically synthetic organochlorine compounds. 
when we look at these chlorinated compounds, um, they're formed, uh, these chlorinated compounds of interest are formed by combustion processes uh, in the presence of chlorine. These are often nonpolar and therefore lipophilic, and they have the ability to be sequestered in fat tissue, and so it actually does circulate in what we have referred to again as the liposphere. Now, these aglanochlorine compounds have been related in a general way, uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons, CHCs, to immune dysfunction, various neurological effects, uh, cancer, endocrine disruption, and some other toxicological endpoints. Now, because of our use of chlorine in industry and just its appearance in the normal natural environment, remember that we have uh, chlorine in salt water, sodium chloride. Uh, we also have an array of naturally occurring chlorinated compounds. But sometimes uh, we find that synthetic organochlorine compounds, and because of their use and uh, actually uh, in various industrial processes like bleaching of paper, uh, and in uh, various medical procedures uh, in terms of uh, disinfection, and then the uh, waste management practices. Historically, uh, it's been problematic in terms of incineration uh, that these uh, organochlorine compounds, these chlorinated hydrocarbons, have proliferated into the environment as persistent bioaccumulative and toxic compounds. Sometimes the effects of uh, low-level exposure to these chemicals are subclinical. In other words, they have a chemical level, biochemical level toxicosis, perhaps even on a cellular basis, but they are subclinical in terms of impacting uh, endpoint toxicosis on an organism. So we're not going to necessarily see uh, some of the aspects of toxicology, target organ toxicology in low level uh, uh, chronic exposure to dioxins. We have had episodes, and we'll review several of them, of high exposure associated with occupational exposure and in some curious sorts of industrial accidents that have allowed us to do uh, a little bit better job of human health risk assessment associated with uh, low-level or chronic exposure uh, to dioxins. There's also been, for example, with the Viktor Yushchenko case, some case studies associated with high-level acute exposure. In 2003 and in 2006, the National Academy of Sciences actually uh, did some significant analyses. And once again, the National Academy of Sciences, what they do is they call together uh, a dozen or so of the leading scientists in the area. These are the premier brain trust uh, scientists uh, uh, and perhaps occasionally policymakers uh, associated uh, with regulatory science call them together and actually have them opine on a current situation. How are we doing? What do we need to do better in terms of the relationship of risk assessment in the government? In uh, 2003, National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine published dioxins and dioxin-like compounds, these DLCs, uh, in the food supply. Uh, I give you the uh, link there. You can read that document. It's uh, well over 200 pages long. Uh, but usually the summaries of these documents are very, very telling in terms of background statements and a snapshot of the current science when this particular uh, book was, was written. Uh, another one to look at is health risk from dioxin and related compounds evaluation of the EPA reassessment. Uh, this came out in July 2006. This was a review 
of EPA's reassessment, uh, which was actually finally published in 2003. Uh, this reassessment uh, by EPA was about a three or four year process, a very, very detailed uh, reevaluation in terms of the existing liter literature at the time. It was interesting that in this 2006 reassessment, reevaluation of the EPA uh, work, uh, pretty much there was uh, two major findings. One is, should we be calling dioxin as TCDD, tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, a known human carcinogen or a probable human carcinogen? The data is a little bit conflicted. We have some elements of data, but it is not as clear as perhaps we would like it. But even this particular group said from a public health perspective, calling something a known carcinogen or a probable carcinogen really has very limited effect in terms of the management of exposure to that particular chemical. We deal because we don't have a significant amount of data from human trials on many chemicals. We deal with managing risk by labeling certain chemicals according to their potential or probable toxic endpoints. The other area of concern in terms of this group examining dioxins in the current state of regulatory science was the fact that EPA had not done a reference dose calculation. It's one thing to look at the uh, cancer aspects of uh, a chemical, and there is significant amount of data to indicate that it is at least a probable uh, human carcinogen and possibly a known human carcinogen. But there are also acute uh, toxic end effects, uh, such as the chloracne. And, but uh, the findings of this particular group was that uh, EPA needs to go back and establish reference doses. Uh, what is acceptable uh, in terms of overall dose of dioxins, for example, in the human food supply. This reference dose calculation will be very similar to what we explored in lecture four when we talk about the pesticides in the human food chain. The only other major finding of this particular report from 2006 was that EPA needs to do a better job in quantifying uncertainty. The reason I say that and uh, expressly is because in our risk assessment lectures in this course, we will talk about methods to quantify uncertainty in risk calculations. Well, what are dioxins? They're widespread, they're low-level contaminants, uh, they're found in animal feeds and the human food supply. So we are an exposed population, they are around us, and so it is in our best interest to quantify the relative risk of exposures and to have actions and activities associated with public health to monitor and minimize our exposure to dioxins. We find that animal fats are the primary vector of exposure of dioxins. Uh, they metabolize slowly and they do accumulate in our body, body fat over a lifetime. Uh, these are uh, at least uh, uh, projected uh, carcinogens, if not known carcinogens, and so this is of concern. There has been concern, for example, in the relationship of dioxins and these chlorinated hydrocarbons to uh, occurrence or epidemiological occurrence of breast cancer, for example. Uh, the data show uh, decline in levels, and so in our recent history, and we're going to talk about activities in the past decade or so, we have actually seen a decline in the levels of dioxins, our body burden, in terms of, for example, the fat uh, that occurs in our blood. 
We have, in terms of uh, a risk concern of dioxins, uh, some level of concern about uh, endocrine disruption, uh, disruption. And we are also now concerned about exposure in children's health and development. There is a high public priority to reduce dioxin levels, especially in girls and young women. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the potential developmental effects and reproductive effects uh, during pregnancy and uh, 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 prior to conception as well. Now we find in terms of the exposure side of dioxins uh, that, that uh, one of the vectors of contamination of uh, uh, production animals is airborne deposition on grazing areas. This airborne deposition can, can, for example, be a result of combustion processes and the release of dioxins from these combustion processes uh, into the atmosphere. We have said that chlorine and chlorinated compounds are a major source material for the production of dioxins in combustion. Uh, when you look at all of the white paper in front of you, uh, much of it uh, has been bleached with chlorine. If that paper is combusted, there is a potential uh, release of dioxins in that combustion processes. Trace amounts, but when you do a mass balance in terms of the amount of chlorinated compounds, uh, we use chlorine bleach for many industrial processes. We use it in our home laundry. Uh, we use it for disinfection of our water. Uh, we generate trihalomethanes in wastewater. All of these things are a part of the potential impact of chlorine and its release into our environment. We do observe some geographic variability. Um, we'll see some data that, for example, you will find in soils uh, higher level of dioxin concentrations in soils nearby urban areas than, for example, rural areas. In human foods, we have a relatively uniform uh, exposure, and this has a lot to do, at least in the United States, with our food distribution networks and patterns. Our grocery stores uh, have a tremendous distribution network. We are eating food from all parts of the country. In fact, uh, one might argue all parts of the world in these days of uh, geo geographic uh, distribution of food. Uh, so we do have, in terms of our exposure, a relatively uniform level of exposure, even though, for example, source materials might be more associated with industrial areas of the country. We do find a linkage uh, between dioxin levels and food consumption patterns. If you are uh, consuming a high-fat diet, you will have a higher exposure to these dioxin-like compounds. In animal uh, fats, where we do find uh, dioxin, uh, full-fat dairy and fatty fish uh, are some of the more important sources of dioxins. This slide gives a chemical structure of chlorinated dibenzodioxins. And again, what I want you to understand is that there is an array of conjugars. These conjugars actually are, have a result of uh, the amount of chlorination on the dibenzodioxin structure. So we have this basic structure. This is the classic compound, 2378-tetrachlorodibenzoparadioxin. Uh, also referred to as TCDD. Um, it's important to know this because this is the most uh, toxic uh, di uh, dioxin that there is, and it is also the reference structure when we start, start talking about uh, toxicity equivalence. Two, three, seven, eight uh, in terms of the chlorination pattern. 
I also want you to, s to note uh, the structure. This is not a three-dimensional representation, uh, but this is, remembering uh, freshman and, and organic chemistry, going to be uh, a somewhat planar molecule. Because it is a planar molecule, it has certain conformational restrictions. Uh, what's also quite interesting, if I put this molecule up against the uh, estrogenic steroid estradiol, uh, there is actually great similarity in not only the structure and size and conformation of the molecule, but also the electron distribution. This is one of the reasons people think that this is the, uh, a good uh, hormone-disrupting chemical in terms of estrogenic effects. Now these uh, uh, PCDDs, or polychlorinated dibenzodioxins, these are the various cogeners uh, that we can find with this. And you notice in terms of the numbering system, we can have as many as four chlorines on this end of the ring and another four chlorines on this. And so the combination of chlorination on these polychlorinated dibenzodioxins give us a great variety in the chemical structures of this array of compounds. The other class of compounds, uh, very similar, are the chlorinated dibenzofurans. The difference being is that we have a five-membered furan group uh, here in the middle, not a dibenzo, um, not a, uh, a polyether, a diether compound. And this is 2378TCDD. TC dibenzofuran, DF. Um, so the DFs are the dibenzofurans, okay? And so the same way that we had the chemical uh, variety for the dibenzodioxins, we have the chemical variety for the dibenzofurans. Now we've talked briefly about PCBs and their risk assessment in this course, and this is 334455 uh, hexachlorobiphenyl, or PCB, one of the PCBs. So we have the same sort of array of potential chemical compounds in PCBs. So this, essentially what I'm trying to communicate here is that when we do risk assessment for these chlorinated hydrocarbons, we are doing risk assessment typically for an array of compounds. They can be monochlorinated, dichlorinated, polychlorinated. The other thing that's of interest is that because of the processes uh, associated with environmental uh, modifications and the environmental biochemistry that might happen in terms of uh, the action of microbes in the environment, dehalogenation can happen. And so, for example, this polychlorinated biphenyl might lose electively these chlorines uh, over time. This might, for example, change their disposition in the environment, make them more volatile, uh, allowing, for example, airborne deposition uh, from sediments. Some of the background in terms of totaling up all of the numbers, we have then about 75 dioxin cogeners and about 135 dibenzofuran cogeners, and so we have a fairly large array of chemicals. This makes for a complex uh, laboratory assessment uh, because we're not looking for one molecule called dioxin. Although I might tell you that uh, tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, TCDD, this grandfather structure, 2378, is sometimes referred to dioxin, but it is more correctly referred to as TCDD because it is one of the dioxin structures. However, that being said, and you'll see this in a minute, our TEF, toxicity equivalent approach, will reference the toxicity of all these different cogeners to this parent compound. 
and that simplifies our risk assessment, and it's uh, a good thing as well. In general, these CDDs, these chlorinated dibenzodioxins and the dibenzofurans are present in human adipose tissue and bird and fish tissues at a sub-microgram uh, per kilogram level, okay? So when we look, we find them. They're there. Um, many of the, the, the actual isomers that we find are the less or relatively non-toxic isomers. In general, what we find in terms of classifying the toxicity on a relative basis is that the chlorinated uh, uh, dibenzodioxins are greater toxicity than the dibenzofurans, which are significantly greater in toxicity than PCBs, which are greater in toxicity than the chlorinated naphthalenes, where we just have a naphthalene two-ring structure. Okay, so this gives us an ability, and this is typically, in terms of relative toxicity, this is going to be acute tonic, chronic toxicity because we typically don't rate carcinogens this particular way. In terms of uh, approaches to risk management, what we do is we combine the risks from these dioxins because we have so many compounds, and we can do this because dioxins share a common mechanism of toxicity. This is somewhat similar when we started doing common mechanism of toxicity risk assessment when we did pesticide risk assessment, for example, in the neurotoxin uh, organophosphate and carbamate uh, pesticide categories. We invoke toxicity equivalency factors, TEFs, uh, to compare the toxicity of the different dioxins. Uh, these TEFs are expressed in terms of TEQs, or toxicity equivalents. And just think about, uh, let's simplify this down. We have two chemicals that are similar structure. Uh, one of the chemicals on a relative basis is half as toxic as the other, right? So it's going to take an, twice the exposure of the less toxic compound to achieve the toxic endpoints of the more toxic compound. Magnify that throughout the, all of the cogeners of uh, TCDD and uh, dioxins and dibenzofurans, and you get a sense of why we're trying to do TEF, TEQ approaches to risk assessment. The TEQ, or the toxicity equivalent, is the amount of TCDD, this 2378-tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, this grandfather structure, so it's all relative, and it's the amount, the relative amount of this compound it would take to equal the combined toxic effect of all the dioxins found in that mixture, okay? And so that's one of the ways we have chosen to simplify the risk assessment with dioxins. This graph allows us to take a look at how we might display these toxicity equivalency factors to calculate these TEQs. Uh, for example, uh, we'll go to the dioxin side of this. This is the cogeners. So here's our grandfather 2378 TCDD. We can just give it a toxicity equivalency factor of 1.0. So everything is relative to that. So you can see that the most chlorinated, the 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, that's the fully chlorinated, that's octochlorodibenzodioxin, is actually one thousandths as toxic uh, as TCDD, okay? So although as we get to some of these uh, less chlorinated, like the pentachlorinated uh, uh, dibenzodioxins, which are about half as toxic, you can see that it is a good approach if we have a quantitative analysis of, for example, the amounts of these different cogeners in a food, uh, we can do a relative risk assessment talking about 
the relative TCDD toxicity. Over here, the same thing, same approach for these uh, dibenzofurans. Um, notice that TCDF, 2378 TCDF, the four chlorinated uh, analog to C TCDD, is about one tenth as toxic as tetrachlorodibenzodioxin. Okay? And because these chemicals quite often are combustion byproducts, they occur together, we reference all of this to TCDD. And this helps us, again, simplify our risk assessment challenge. This approach to risk assessment is one that is done internationally. Uh, the EPA actually, uh, uh, in its 2003 reassessment, uh, validated this. And in 2006, this reassessment validation was once again revalidated as a good approach uh, by the National Academies of Sciences. This graph gives us a historical comp context uh, for dioxin body burdens, kind of where we've come and where we're going. And, and it has a lot to do with these incidences over the past century or so where we've had occupation or industrial accident exposure to dioxins. Uh, we'll go through a little bit of a discussion of the, of the incidents here, but to look at the dioxin bur body burden levels, uh, these bars actually represent the body burden, and that's in nanograms per kilogram, and that's whole body 25% uh, lipid normalization. Uh, these concentrations, uh, again, nanogram per kilogram, this is a log graph, so we have 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000. Now, when we take a look at the, each of the individual bars, they represent different cohorts. Uh, in this first cohort, this is a background. This is the Centers for Disease Control did an assessment in 2000. Uh, essentially, we're talking about an average in terms of nanograms uh, per kilogram uh, of, and these are, again, going to be parts per trillion if you want to convert it to, to uh, the more uh, informal units. Um, that in the green part, this is the estimated uh, background non-TCDDs. TEQs, and then the, the white is the component that is just, I'm sorry, the blue is the component that is the actual 2378 TCDD. But in terms of the averages, we're talking about less than 10 parts per trillion background in 2000 in the U.S. population. That's a significant improvement when they go back and analyze it against the 1990 cohort across the USA where it actually had an exceedance of 10 parts per trillion. And so in terms of our understanding, our knowledge, and our regulatory science approaches to managing dioxin in the human food chain, uh, we're doing good because we're having an effect of reducing those body burden levels. Now, the rest of these are uh, associated with industrial accidents or occurrences in terms of high-level exposure. Uh, you'll hear me talk about Cervezo. This was an industrial chemical accident um, from a pesticide factory in Cervezo, Italy. Uh, there was the Cervezo B population uh, and then the Cervezo A population. These are populations in the community around Cervezo, the downwinders that were exposed following this industrial accident. Uh, what you can see is that their body burdens are fairly significant. The A populations uh, here um, in this particular case had extremely high level exposures ranging up to 1,400 parts per 
trillion, 14 parts per billion, if you will, uh, an average over 100 parts per trillion, and so a significant increase against at least the background when referenced against U.S. background numbers. But you can see that there is a distribution as you get away from the sites. The Seveso B populations were a farther distance away from the epicenter of the plume. These next two in here are called Operation Ranch Hand. These are low exposure cohort and a high exposure cohort. Operation Ranch Hand uh, happened. It was in the Vietnam War. Uh, some of you uh, might have heard of Agent Orange. Uh, essentially, what we used is 245T, which is an herbicide. Um, in, in the 1960s, the industrial process to make 245T uh, was a fairly dirty process and had a significant amount of dioxin byproduct in there, significant in terms of human health risk assessment. The soldiers that were involved in the airborne spraying of this chemical, which was uh, intended to defoliate uh, swaths of jungle in terms of detection and management of the enemy, uh, were exposed to significant amounts of this. Um, and in terms of their dioxin body burden levels, you can see that uh, there was definitely an elevation, at least relative to the 1990 and 2000 background numbers. Uh, there was another industrial accident in Germany in a BASF uh, chemical factory, also a pesticide factory. Um, this, these are categories of individuals uh, that in this category, no chloroacne uh, in this particular cohort, moderate chloroacne or the uh, acne associated with uh, high-level acute exposure of dioxins, and then this cohort, severe chloroacne. And you can see a dose response in terms of the clinical manifestation of acute uh, dioxin toxicosis and the body burden of levels associated with that uh, industrial accident. So to go back and look at these, these case studies uh, in terms of what gives us the background uh, in human health risk assessment of dioxin exposure in the 1940s and 50s here in the United States, uh, you'll, you can read about Love Canal uh, this was in upstate New York. Uh, this was a hazardous waste uh, landfill release. Hooker Chemicals was using uh, a plot of land to bury waste chemicals from their manufacturing operation. Uh, many of these chemicals uh, were uh, combined uh, to cause uh, dioxin release as well as many other chemicals. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they donated it to, uh, as land for a park and a school. Uh, and it was right next to a housing subdivision as well before we knew much about uh, uh, dioxin risk assessment or chemical hazardous chemical waste management risk assessment. Uh, uh, this uh, was a, a perhaps uh, less than uh, desirable situation in terms of looking backwards in terms of how we handle and manage uh, hazardous materials. Uh, in 1982 and before, we had what was referred to as Times Beach. This is Times Beach, Missouri. This is an unfortunate situation where uh, some industrial chemical waste mix, primarily oils, were used to oil uh, various streets in this community. Uh, they had uh, dirt roads. Uh, this was in uh, a way to use a cheap uh, industrial byproduct to keep the dust down. Uh, as it turned out, uh, the chemical mix they were using had significant levels of dioxins. Uh, we, being the taxpayers of the United States, had to go in and essentially buy the town of Times Beach. They closed it down, boarded it up, uh, and essentially uh, it was a devastating, uh, if you will, industrial community accident. I talked a little bit about Agent Orange. Again, this was uh, uh, Vietnam era, uh, early mid-60s, uh, Operation Ranch Hand defoliation using 
2,4-D uh, and 2,4-5-T, both chlorinated herbicides. 1976, I talked about the Seveso Italy, and this also was 2,4-5-T, 2,4-5-trichlorophenol, uh, industrial accident. And again, when we have these accidents and there's fire involved, the combustion processes uh, lend uh, a significant amount of uh, high temperature uh, in terms of the chemical reaction of these chlorinated hydrocarbons to form dioxins. Uh, the BASF uh, industrial accident was in 1953. Uh, this again was chlorinated herbicides, and so we do have some significant level of exposure case studies with significantly sized cohorts. Uh, when researchers have gone back, uh, now if you take a look, for example, at Seveso, Italy, uh, th this was relatively modern. We had at least the ability to do epidemiological monitoring in terms of, uh, for example, uh, uh, reproductive impacts, uh, cancer. Uh, the data is uh, somewhat mix, uh, mixed in terms of uh, epidemiological effects uh, here uh, several decades later. Uh, there have been some associations with adverse health effects, uh, but perhaps not enough to be convincing in terms of dose response associated with carcinogenicity and other public health uh, impacts. Now, in terms of the United States, our background serum, when we took a look at it in 1995-1997 uh, cohort, uh, the median TEQ, so this is the total equivalence uh, of uh, dibenzofurans and dioxins. Uh, we had about, uh, uh, and this is in units of uh, uh, picograms per gram of lipid, and so we're, we're back calculating this not to total blood values, but for the lipid concentration, because it's found in lipids uh, in serum. Uh, the median was 18, the mean was 22, 95th percentile, 38.8 picograms per gram. If we looked at just the 2378 uh, TCDD in terms of picogram, about two picograms uh, uh, for median and a mean. Uh, what we found that in this analysis, uh, when we did dietary estimations, the adult background intake was about 70 picograms of toxic equivalents of dioxin per day, okay? So that's the daily exposure of this group of chemicals. Now, what we find is that TCDD is characterized as a known human carcinogen according to the current dioxin risk assessment from EPA. Now, the other dioxins, the non-2378, are characterized as likely human carcinogens. The 2006 reassessment found no problem with the other dioxins being characterized as likely human carcinogens. There was a significant debate whether or not TCDD in of itself should be classified as a known human carcinogen or as a probable or likely human carcinogen. Uh, the split decision uh, indicates that uh, the risk assessment is exceptionally difficult for this chemical uh, because of the very low levels it is known to cause disease. Uh, what we found, uh, find is that at least currently EPA's standing is that it is a known human carcinogen um, and it is at least a likely uh, human carcinogen. Uh, and so we do need to know that there is a difference in TCDD as a unique chemical, as a human carcinogen, and the other dioxins in terms of their likely human carcinogen status.
We find in terms of dioxin toxicity that dioxins can alter various uh, growth and development of cell uh, cells. Uh, there's impacts that they can result at in terms of adverse effects upon various reproduction and developments uh, in organisms. Uh, in terms of uh, its impact or toxic endpoint, we find that these chlorinated hydrocarbons have a direct uh, potential on suppressing the immune system, so we can refer to them as immunotoxic. Uh, one of the more uh, visible manifestations of acute high-level dioxin exposure is a syndrome called chloracne, and this is a severe acne-like condition. I've shown you this uh, picture before. Um, this is uh, a mo most recent uh, 2003 picture of Viktor Yushchenko uh, in terms of dioxin poisoning during uh, the Ukrainian presidential campaign. What do we know about dioxin exposure? We know that they're highly persistent, uh, bioaccumulative, and toxic. Uh, about 95%, I'm sorry, 95% of the dioxin intake in a typical person comes through dietary intake of animal fats. And so in terms of risk assessment, uh, there's perhaps another reason to examine your fat uh, consumption in your diet. In terms of uh, low exposure uh, vectors of uh, dioxin exposure, we find that breathing air uh, can contain uh, trace amounts of dioxins. Uh, some folks can ingest uh, dust or soil that contains dioxins. Uh, we've discussed uh, here uh, the importance, for example, in lead toxicosis in, and blood lead levels in children. Uh, because toddlers uh, are crawling on the floor, their hand-mouth activities uh, lead them to actually consume on the order of a milligram or or two or three or four or five, depending on the size of the child, of dust per day just from the floor. If that dust contains toxins such as dioxin, there is a potential exposure. We can have absorption potentially through the skin uh, in terms of contaminated, contaminated air, uh, soil, and our water containing various minute uh, exposures uh, levels. Uh, but primarily, we are concerned about food exposure. Various environmental processes uh, can result in this low-level exposure of the general population. <coughs> but what we've found that uh, the regulatory science, uh, the academic science in published peer-reviewed literature in terms of the risk assessment and risks associated with dioxin in public health uh, have led to uh, a significant amount of control in the environment. Uh, it's control in terms of uh, discharge permits for water pollution and for air pollution. Uh, what we found is that there has been a response in terms of environmental levels and also in uh, human uh, uh, tissues. Uh, the dioxin emissions in the United States decreased by about 80 percent uh, between the in the decade 1987 to about 1995. And so this is a clear-cut uh, sort of uh, risk-benefit uh, uh, termination uh, that allowed the regulatory agencies charged with protection of public health to take action. Those actions obviously cost money in terms of emission controls, but there was clear benefits. We'll go through some of the changes in the decades in later slides. In terms of the U.S., the uh, general population body burden in terms of chlorinated dibenzodioxins and the dibenzofurans uh, range from about uh, eight and a half picograms of toxicity equivalents per gram of liquid lipid to about 50 uh, TEQs per gram of lipid. The mean uh, in this is about uh, 21 
picograms uh, TEQs of dibenzo uh, dioxins and furans. Uh, and this is in 1998 uh, general population body burden data. General population uh, intake data in terms of the U.S., the estimates is that uh, we get about 41 picograms uh, of TEQs per day, or about, uh, um, and that's uh, um, in terms of TEQs uh, of, dibenz of dioxins and furans, um, and about 0.59 picograms per kilogram of body weight per day is about what we get in terms of our dosage. In the U.S., the, uh, if you take a look at the total um, chlorinated dibenzodioxin, uh, dibenzofuran, and PCB exposure, if we bump in some other categories of chlorinated hydrocarbons, the estimate jumps up to about 65 picograms per day or one picogram of TEQ uh, per day, uh, per kilogram per day. In children, uh, the estimate is uh, that uh, they're being exposed to about 54 picograms uh, per day um, or about uh, 3.6 picograms per kilogram uh, per day. What we find is that, and this is uh, relevant to dietary uh, patterns in terms of body weight and exposure, that this will decrease for age because on a body weight basis, uh, children eat more on a relative basis than adults do. As it turns out, when we do these analyses, we actually break out the different uh, particular compounds. About five individual compounds make up about 70% of the body burden load. These compounds include the 2378-TCDD, the grandparent, uh, the um, pentachlorinated uh, di di dioxin, um, and the pentachlorinated uh, uh, furans. Uh, hexachlorinated dibenzofuran and PCB number 126, one of the cogeners of PCB, uh, the primary one. Uh, and PCBs were an industrial chemical, unlike TCDD. Uh, PCBs, and we're not really discussing them in too great a detail today, but PCBs were used uh, as a dielectric in transformers. They were used in copy machines. They were uh, because of uh, it was a liquid insulator, if you will, and a liquid dielectric. It had many uh, um, properties, and it's still, in fact, even though it's been banned from industrial manufacture and use, uh, it still is with us today because of its persistence in the environment. Now let's review some of the dioxin effects in humans. What we find is that the amount of dioxin found in various tissues uh, uh, of the um, you know, of humans, uh, their body burden. In terms of the EPA risk assessment approaches, and this is within a factor of 10, the levels at which adverse effects can occur. And so although these numbers are in the picogram uh, uh, parts per trillion level, um, we had discussed that the potential for toxicosis at very low levels is significant. And so the risk uh, in terms of even having these low levels is of concern in terms of risk assessment authorities. There's no for, um, there is no clear linkage, however, between these concentrations and some sort of risk for increased uh, disease in the general population. And so there is obviously a disconnect in terms of the risk assessment process, uh, perhaps limited understanding of the uncertainty. We know that the concentrations are high enough that uh, we can have uh, these uh, 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 toxic impacts 
but we don't necessarily have a cause and effect, and this has a lot to do with just the challenges of risk assessment at these very, very low concentrations, as well as the uh, impact. Uh, car uh, carcinogen risk assessment is extraordinarily difficult because of the long amount of time between uh, dose and uh, potential response. We're talking about, in some cases, decades. In terms of the EPA reassessment in 2003, they found that uh, um, between one of the, uh, there was an increased chance of experiencing cancer uh, rate, and that was uh, between one in 100 and one in 1,000 uh, increased chance related to dioxin exposure. Uh, the cancer risk indicates that uh, in 2000, uh, because of the reassessment and the new knowledge we had about uh, carcinogenicity of this compound, there was about a tenfold higher chance uh, estimated uh, in 2000 than in the previous assessment in 1994. Uh, you can probably expect this to change. And this change is not because we don't know what we're doing in terms of regulatory risk assessment, but it's because new data in terms of peer-reviewed science, new data in terms of clinical case studies and exposure, new data in terms of epidemiological monitoring are actually brought into the new risk assessments. So in this process, we are refining our knowledge and we're refining our approach to risk assessment of dioxins. One of the other approaches to risk assessment dioxin is to focus on children. Uh, and if you recall our discussion about the National Academies of Poor Report of Pesticides and the Diets of Infants and Children, uh, in the early 1990s, it was the first time we actually started a refocusing of regulatory risk assessment, not on human adults, but on human children. Um, the other aspect of uh, the risk assessment is to focus on specific uh, uh, concern groups. Uh, sometimes these can be uh, uh, occupational exposures. Uh, these can be uh, selective populations, for example, populations uh, infirm, immunocompromised, or other individuals that are in special uh, categories. One of the special categories is uh, the U.S. Air Force personnel uh, exposed during the Agent Orange uh, operations in the Vietnam War. Uh, you will still see on a fairly regular basis risk assessment, epidemiological analyses, uh, follow-up uh, uh, reviews of uh, this cohort, this population of exposed individuals. We also actually update uh, the uh, and refocus our, our risk assessment uh, in terms of uh, follow-up of industrial accidents. Uh, you can look through the literature and still find uh, very recent uh, uh, scientific analyses of Seveso Italy and the follow-up analysis of those. And we are also examining uh, subpopulation in groups that have unusually high consumption of fish meat and dairy products, uh, some aboriginal populations, for example, Alaskan Native Americans uh, that uh, consume high levels of uh, marine animal fat uh, in their diet and therefore have a potential vector of exposure to dioxin and dioxin-like compounds. I've tried to introduce that, in fact, dioxin risk assessment uh, is uh, full of controversy. Uh, the controversy is a part of the scientific assessment, reassessment, and analysis in terms of uh, modulating, moderating public health aspects of dioxin and its exposure. Part of the problem that's associated with dioxins and dioxins' impact on biological systems 
has to do with the array of biochemical effects, uh, these subclinical effects that we see on dioxin exposure. When we look, we find them. There is a question, for example, of whether or not enzyme induction and various indicators of altered cellular function are significant indicators of toxicity. Or is that just the organism, the organelles and the cells responding to a chemical, uh, chemical exposure in the very same way that uh, various cells respond in terms of biotransformation uh, responses, for example, to oxidative stress? Uh, so is this any different? Is this a toxic endpoint in and of itself, a cascade effect, if you will, that's going to lead to some toxic outcome? Or is this just the body, uh, the organism, uh, adapting to a chemical exposure? Uh, this is a point of challenge. It's gotten perhaps even more complicated as we have become better at examining uh, uh, molecular biology, uh, genetic uh, responses to toxicants, uh, interactions uh, of chemicals on a cellular basis and not necessarily organ or organismal basis. In terms of a case study, I thought I'd break it up here with a relatively recent uh, case study. This is 1999. It's referred to as the Belgium incident. Uh, it was a fairly devastating incident. Uh, in this particular case, so what happened was uh, uh, there was a, uh, a livestock food supply mill uh, that used uh, rendered fat uh, for as one of the ingredients. Uh, this is relatively common as a calorie booster in animal uh, production animal livestock feed. Uh, unfortunately, the truck that was transporting the rendered fat, uh, someone had also uh, used it to transport waste industrial oils. Some of the waste industrial oils were transformer oils that were highly contaminated uh, with PCBs and dioxins. Uh, this was an unfortunate situation because the rendered fat then took on this load of PCBs and dioxins. It was mixed into animal food at a mill that serviced a tremendously large clientele uh, of livestock and animal agriculture in Belgium primarily, but also in other parts of Europe. Uh, veterinarians and animal managers noticed that with the poultry there was a reduction in egg hatchability, there was reduced weight gain and increased uh, mortality. Uh, there was an edema and there's a classic uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon uh, uh, veterinary toxicology profile called chick edema that's associated with chlorinated hydrocarbons. And so the veterinarians supervising these operations were very sharp in noticing chick edema and coming up with a diagnosis uh, of potential chlorinated hydrocarbon exposure. Ataxis or a paralysis or inability to walk was another uh, clinical sign or observation uh, in these poultry. Essentially, what they did find was that PCBs and dioxins had entered uh, the human food chain through these animal products. Uh, in the whole episode, uh, and this include not only uh, animals but uh, meat products, uh, 60 million kilograms, that's 120, uh, 150 uh, pound, uh, million pounds uh, of animals had to be destroyed because of contamination uh, of their body fat uh, with PCBs, with dioxins. Um, there was an international meat product embargo, uh, not only on Belgian products, but some of uh, France and Spain and some surrounding countries uh, because of cross-border shipments of livestock, cross-border shipments of feed and food products. 
If we take a look at the data, uh, this graph gives you kind of a broad uh, uh, relationship. Uh, this is dioxins and PCBs in the original feedstuffs. Uh, what we've done here in this graph is put log of the PCBs, and this is micrograms uh, per gram of fat. And so this is uh, essentially in a part per million, micrograms per gram, a part per million domain. Uh, this is a part per billion, a picogram per gram uh, of fat for dioxins. And so what we saw is that there was a, a very definite evidence of a co-related uh, contamination. This is a nice linear line essentially suggesting that the feedstuffs were contaminated by a material that contained uh, a ratio, a kind of fairly constant ratio of dioxins and PCBs. When we take a look at that and how it uh, developed in terms of body fat, uh, we see a very similar slope and linear relationship again. The PCBs and the fat in this particular uh, diagram is for chickens. Um, and this is dioxins, uh, again, parts uh, per billion in fat. And so we're seeing about one part per billion, two parts per billion in fat for dioxins and uh, about one or two parts per uh, million of uh, PCBs in chicken. And so, in a certain sense, these animals that grow up on feed become their feed uh, in terms of the bioaccumulation impacts of these lipophilic compounds. Uh, this was devastating uh, not only to the animal industry uh, in this part uh, of the world, but also to the consuming public uh, because meat products were out on the market, they were being consumed, and these are relatively high concentrations in terms of potential uh, public health impacts. Well, let's, let's take a few uh, moments here to uh, go back and review uh, the uh, clinical pathologic concepts associated with dioxin exposure. Most of this comes to us uh, from animal studies. There has been over the past several decades a significant amount of research associated uh, with chlorinated hydrocarbons and di dioxin in particular. What we find is that the syndrome induced by chlorinated dibenzodioxins in a given species of animals is comparable to that that's introduced by the full range of chlorinated hydrocarbons. And so that's why, for example, the veterinarians in the Belgium case observed chickedema, and so they were initially thinking chlorinated hydrocarbons. We have this classic uh, clinical uh, syndrome. The pathogenesis of the disease is the same, uh, so this suggests that these chemicals, these chlorinated hydrocarbons, these dioxin-like compounds, uh, involve the same uh, biochemical receptors. In terms of exposure, typically we find that exposure can be by a mixture of these isomers and various compounds, so usually it's not a dose response with a unique isolated chemical, and this is also one of the reasons why we have fallen back to toxicity equivalents in terms of risk assessment and management in terms of exposure. It's best to view dioxin exposure uh, and chlorinated hydrocarbon exposure as uh, in terms of the, etiolo the etiology uh, rather than a specific uh, insult. So there is a collection of syndromes associated with uh, acute or chronic exposure of this relative class of compounds. What we find is that the uh, syndrome varies uh, from species uh, to species. Uh, the skin of primates and rabbits in terms of ears and control test. Cattle and some mice uh, show this uh, characteristic chloracne or follicular uh, dermatitis that we've seen in this particular uh, uh, disposition. There's a photograph in the used textbook of a child uh, impacted with chloracne. 
this is a somewhat uh, reversible lesion, uh, although it is a skin-damaging episode. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, outcome, there is a greater concern about long-term uh, potential for uh, cancer than for uh, even a, a mildly disfiguring uh, acne. We find that the livers of chickens, uh, rabbits, uh, mice show necrotic uh, response of uh, lethal severity. Uh, guinea pigs, cattle, non-human primates uh, show an enlarged liver, some epithelial hyperplasia uh, of the uh, um, uh, bile duct and, and gallbladder. And so there is apparently some tissue damage, some acute damage to various tissues. This is high-level exposure. This is not chronic low-level exposure. Uh, some of the animals uh, show various epithelial lesions uh, in the gastrointestinal tract and in the renal tract. Again, these are typically uh, resulting from uh, test animal experiments uh, that occurred primarily in the 70s associated with uh, trying to come up with a risk assessment for these chlorinated hydrocarbons. We find that in terms of the syndrome, the one organ that uniformly shows lesions in all species is the thymus, and this is probably the linkage between uh, these chlorinated hydrocarbons and their immunotoxic effects because the thymus is a primary organ in terms of the development and maturation of various immune-type cells. In lethal intoxications, the thymus often weighs about 25% of normal. Um, and again, because it is the site of formation of these lymphocytes and antibody production, it is probably the linkage between dioxin exposure, chlorinated hydrocarbon exposure, and immunotoxic effects. We find that severe intoxication of ver in birds is accompanied by this uh, fluid ac accumulation that has been uh, uh, termed chick edema. Uh, we find uh, an interesting feature in animal studies associated with TCDD, and that is that the total dose of TCDD required to produce disease is less if the dose is spread over time than if it is actually uh, given to a single dose. This has a lot to do uh, with potential adaptation, uh, various receptor sites, and how uh, we biotransform uh, and uh, actually metabolize uh, the particular uh, chemical compound. The LD50s are uh, the risk driver uh, in uh, many uh, risk assessments, and it's no different uh, in terms of uh, uh, dioxins. For TCDD, this is again tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, the LD50s are significant in that they are quite low. The units here are micrograms uh, per kilogram, so this is uh, a uh, part per trillion. So these are very small uh, doses, I'm sorry, part per billion. Uh, so in terms of a lethal dose for 50% of population in pigs that's the most sensitive animal and risk assessment is driven by the most sensitive species, uh, the lethal dose is 600 parts per trillion or 0.6 uh, parts per, uh, per billion. Uh, in avian species, they're classified as very sensitive. There's no exact number. It does range. You can find various uh, test trials uh, across different species in the rat. Uh, our classic comparative toxicology species, about 22 to 45 uh, parts per billion, uh, different than mice, uh, which is up to 100 to 200 parts uh, per uh, uh, billion. Uh, rhesus monkeys, somewhere less than 70. In rabbits, uh, about 115. 
but then we jump in hamsters uh, to 5,000, so we're getting up into the part per million range. This diversity of species response is a part of the controversy associated with human health risk assessment. Uh, if we see this high variability in terms of comparative toxicology, remember that we use comparative toxicology in human health risk assessment. We do this with safety factors, but we do it off of the most sensitive species. And so what the question uh, arises in terms of discussion of risk assessment of dioxins, uh, what happens if, in fact, uh, the comparative toxicology is wrong in this particular case, that, in fact, we're more like hamsters uh, than we are uh, guinea pigs or pigs? Uh, and uh, uh, these questions are out there in terms of are we being overly uh, conservative in our risk assessment of dioxins. However, note that this is a risk assessment based on LD50, the lethal dose for 50% of the population. Most risk assessors would argue that the driver in risk assessment for dioxin is not lethality from acute exposure, it is from cancer risk assessment. What we find in terms of observations, and this is from controlled studies <coughs> and field studies, is that young animals uh, and females in general uh, may be more susceptible to intoxication. Uh, in neonatal death, uh, we, find, we find neonatal death, poor survival of the young, uh, female infertility uh, and reproductive failure is indicated uh, by some of the uh, problems that we observe in field studies associated with chlorinated hydrocarbon exposures. Uh, at lethal dose levels, the time between exposure and death for dioxins and chlorinated hydrocarbons is unusually long. Uh, in the guinea pig, rat, and mice model, that's two to three weeks. Uh, given the lethal dose, death doesn't come for two to three weeks, and this is atypical. Uh, in monkeys, it's about six weeks. Uh, this suggests that there is probably some bioactivation or cascading of effect of these chemical compounds. We find that except for animals with uh, severe liver necrosis, and this includes the chicken and rabbit animal model, the cause of death is not usually attributed to a specific organ or system pathology. So again, it's a syndrome, it's an etiologic uh, combination of, uh, of uh, impacts. And uh, in general, we can classify this as a wasting disease. Uh, in terms of how these animals die over weeks, uh, it resembles uh, starvation, anorexia. In environmental exposures with these chlorinated hydrocarbons, we find that the disease is also complicated by the immunotoxic effects and opportunistic infections. So the animals may not die directly of the exposure, um, but indirectly by infectious disease. In terms of studying the metabolism of TCDD, we find that uh, uh, in rat and dog studies that the major metabolites are hydroxylated compounds. Remember that in phase one biotransformation, phase two biotransformation, we are trying to turn grease into salt. Uh, TCDD as a nonpolar chemical is a very greasy chemical. It's very lipophilic. And so you would imagine that hydroxylated compounds would be uh, a fairly reasonable biotransformation product. Most of the compound administered in control studies is eliminated as the parent compound in the feces. We find that chronic rodent bioassays and life and short-term uh, uh, studies have addressed various issues of tumor initiation, promotion, co-carcinogenesis, 
DNA interaction, mutagenesis and clastogenesis, or the breaking of, of chromosomes. And so we see all of these potential impacts that dioxin literature is uh, very large, if you will, if not uh, thousands of papers associated with dioxin, metabolism of dioxin, and dioxin risk assessment. If we try to summarize some of the major findings associated with carcinogenicity and mutagenicity in some animal studies, these are uh, doses uh, from uh, 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per day to uh, 0.001 in the rat, and these are sprig dolly rats. Uh, what we find in terms of responses is hepatocytor or squamous cell carcinoma uh, occurring with uh, an increase in dose in the mouse. We find uh, these hepatocellular tumors and thyroid tumors in mice as well in a dose-dependent response. And so we do see in animal models the mutagenicity and carcinogenicity of these uh, TCDD chemicals. In terms of the uh, mechanistic analysis of toxicity and carcinogenicity, again, this is uh, an active area of study trying to decode the molecular biomolecular pathways of carcinogenesis and toxicity. Uh, in general, what the findings uh, will tell us is that uh, you'll they'll observe an alteration of the cell membrane function and cell-cell communication. There seems to be some effect on vitamin A function. Uh, there seems to be an enhancement of membrane lipid peroxidation, uh, some therefore potential in terms of oxidative stress that we discussed previously. There's an impact on thyroid hormones, there's an impact on hormonal levels, and there appears to be some DNA modifications. Some experiments suggest uh, generation of uh, superoxide, and so the potential for oxidative stress and initiation of peroxidation by ferrous iron. So there is, via oxidative stress and the generation of free radicals, the potential for liver damage, uh, the liver being our primary detoxification organ and the primary synthesizer of the molecules uh, to support life. Uh, this is obviously one potential pathway for toxicosis. We find that TCDD inhibits hepatic selenium glutathione peroxidase. If you recall from our discussion, in oxidative stress, selenium glutathione peroxidase is the primary antioxidant enzyme that actually manages the superoxide that is generated in respiratory processes of aerobic organisms. Uh, we also find a reduced level of glutathione. There is a, in terms of the findings of animal studies, a relationship between uh, glutathione peroxidase activity and survival. So if, in fact, we can manage the generation of these free radicals uh, generated in these hepatotoxic events by dioxin, there is a potential for survival of the organism. We do find that lipid peroxidation is an important endpoint in the toxic pathway of dioxins. This uh, fairly comprehensive list uh, would probably be better served to put a, di a diagram in here, but uh, in terms of the folks that study the uh, molecular biology, uh, the cellular biology of dioxin exposure, uh, they've come to some sort of agreement of some of the early molecular events. Uh, dioxin will diffuse into the cell. There'll be uh, a, a binding uh, with the aryl hydrocarbon receptor protein. 
And so um, this is one of the reasons this AHR, this, this receptor protein, is why we have a very similar syndrome or etiology of all of this class of compounds of the chlorinated uh, hydrocarbons and hydrocarbons is because they all impact the same uh, protein receptor. There is a dissociation associated with heat shock protein 90. Uh, there is an active translocation from the cytoplasm. There's an association with a uh, uh, aryl hydrocarbon uh, nuclear transport protein uh, there's a conversion of a liganded uh, receptor heteromer to enhanced DNA. Uh, there's an enhancer activation followed by uh, some altered DNA configuration. Uh, there's a histone modification, recruitment of additional protein, uh, nucleosome disruption, increased accessibility of transcriptional promoters, binding of transcriptional factors to promoters, enhanced uh, messenger RNA and protein synthesis. And so you do see molecular events, you see a cascade of responses. There's still, in terms of the risk assessment community, the molecular toxicology community, trying to decipher all of these molecular level events and relate them to risk assessment, to relate them to further uh, intoxication in terms of cascade at the organ or organismal uh, level, including uh, the potential for carcinogenesis. This uh, uh, fairly broad uh, uh, table gives us an array of the effects of TCDD and related compounds in terms of uh, all of the potential toxic endpoints in various species. Uh, across the top, in terms of species, we have humans, monkeys, rats, fish, avian wildlife, marine mammals. Uh, down in this axis, we have enzyme induction, acute lethality, wasting syndrome, teratogenesis mortality, endocrine effects, immunotoxicity, carcinogenicity, neurotoxicity, porf porphyria, and hepatotoxicity. What you can see as you scan this is that predominantly where you see something in here where we have a little bit of data, primarily we see a plus sign, a plus sign indicating that there is a relationship, a known relationship of TCDD and this observed toxic effect. Uh, in humans, the difference uh, is that uh, it may or may not be. The data is not as clear, again, because we do not do toxicological trials in humans. But in general, the range of toxic endpoints uh, is pretty clear in terms of TCDD, and a preponderance of those endpoints have, in fact, been observed in humans. Now let's shift over out of the uh, clinical and molecular biology aspects of dioxin into the environmental exposure, the environmental transport, and the environmental source of dioxins and dioxin-like compounds. We find that the major source types include combustion and incineration sources. Some of these uh, also coming from metal smelting, refining and processing, chemical manufacturing and processing various reservoir sources such as soils, uh, because uh, soils and microbes in soils have been found to be able to generate uh, naturally occurring dioxins at very low levels. Uh, there is also potential for biological and photochemical processes. Uh, there has been historically and currently uh, in the past uh, couple of decades at least uh, significant regulatory pressure to limit release, and this has a lot to do with the toxicological profile, the potential for carcinogenicity of these chemical compounds, and more than anything else, that they are preventable in terms of uh, the major, major pathways of human exposure. 
If we take a look, um, and this is in relatively recent history, these are uh, TEQ of uh, dioxins, furans, releases in the air in the U.S., and this is over 1995 to 1997, so we see two columns of number on this particular graphic. The graphic, what it does, it goes through the grams of TEQ per year, and this is from incineration processes. You can see that just by taking a look at this, that the major uh, 1987 uh, vector in terms of generation was, in fact, municipal waste incineration uh, at about uh, 9,000 grams of TEQ per year across the U.S. Reduction efforts via regulatory science pressure, regulation effects uh, down to 1,200 in 1995. Medical waste incineration, pathology, pathological uh, incineration also uh, because of emission controls uh, reduced as well. Not so much reduction in terms of uh, forest brush and, and straw fires because uh, those are quite often uh, naturally occurring, uh, so there's real no uh, regulatory limitation other than burn bans associated with trash burning. Uh, in the cement manufacturing process, we use a high-temperature kiln. That kiln takes in, uh, essentially uh, uh, calcines uh, materials uh, close to 1,000 degrees. Uh, because of natural byproducts that might occur in the natural materials, there is a potential generation uh, of that. The amount of TEQs coming out of cement kilns uh, actually showed a small increase, but this is probably more due to the increased number of cement kilns. Uh, uh, but uh, we also find uh, sewage sludge incineration, crematoria in terms of uh, mortuaries, hazardous waste incineration, tire combustion, cigarettes as well, uh, having some sort of TEQ-released air. In terms of power energy generation, and this uh, has a lot to do with uh, transportation like vehicle fuel and as well coal combustion as being kind of uh, major vectors. Uh, what we found in 1987 that we're talking about unleaded, un uh, leaded, unleaded, and uh, diesel fuel. Uh, in terms of the challenges, uh, because we got rid of leaded fuel, um, the change uh, was significant in terms of a reduction. Uh, there hasn't been a necessarily reduction, but an increase, and this is due to higher levels of oil consumption in terms of uh, vehicle uh, transport. In wood combustion, residential and industrial, uh, we see um, a small change, not particularly significant. Uh, we do see uh, a fairly large change in terms of industrials and utilities, uh, about by half in terms of point source. From a regulatory uh, point of view and a uh, regulatory science point of view, uh, we find that it is often a lot easier to manage a point source than a uh, one single factory, if you will, than many different uh, sources or broad, widespread sort of agricultural impacts or residential impacts. In terms of releases to air, the total quantified releases, 1987, about 13,000 grams of TEQ per year. That was reduced uh, over the next decade or so down to 2,700. So obviously that is a big impact. So you can read between the lines there that there has been a tremendous amount of uh, enforcement effort in terms of legislating new emission controls and putting stricter regulations in terms of uh, factory emissions. Uh, where those emissions come from, if we look at major sources, bleached wood pulp and paper mills, 1987, 356 uh, grams of TEQ to water in terms of releases uh, to water. The reduction was down to 20, and this was by a change in the bleaching process uh, associated with uh, pulp and paper manufacturing, a uh, significant uh, reduction overall. 
In terms of land releases, uh, uh, this is disposition of waste materials uh, to land, similar sorts of things, and this has to do with the management of chlorine and in industrial processes and industrial byproducts uh, via regulatory pressure. Uh, overall, a little bit of a reduction, but again, what we find is that uh, airborne release through combustion incineration is the primary uh, release change over the, the decade monitored here. In terms of releases overall in the United States, 1987, 13,000 uh, uh, grams of TEQs per year, uh, down to about 2,800 uh, in 1995. A significant uh, challenge in terms of the application of regulatory pressure uh, and the expense associated with minimizing release and therefore having a potential impact on the public health. There are many other unquantified sources, just to be, kind of be fair and where all of this comes from. It's not all from uh, incineration. There's some uncontrolled uh, combustion of PCBs. There's agricultural burning. There's various mining and uh, smelting operations because of their high temperature. Chemical manufacturing for various uh, phenolic compounds, pentachlorophenol, chlorobenzenes, chlorobiphenyls. Uh, various dyes, pigments, uh, current manufacturing of the popular herbicide uh, used by many homeowners, 2,4-D. Um, various uh, liquid soap manufacturing also is associated with uh, chlorinated hydrocarbon generation. There are some biological and photochemical processes associated with composting. Composting in terms of municipal uh, waste management uh, associated with what happens when we flush, what happens when we uh, put our garbage out uh, at the street corner and where it ends up in terms of uh, waste man uh, management. There are also some reservoir resources uh, out there in terms of the, the background that's in air, sediments, water, and biota. So overall, what we saw was an 80% decrease between 1987 and 1995 of these dioxin and uh, chlorinated uh, uh, hydrocarbons to air, water, and land. Uh, again, due to reduction primarily in air emissions from municipal and medical waste incinerators. Uh, the regulations promulgated in 1995 for municipal combustion and 1997 for medical weight incinerators also should have some effect, but nobody has tabulated them. That tabulation should probably come out in the next uh, few years because it's been about a decade. The various control efforts for air, how did we do this? This came about, and we'll discuss uh, uh, the whole environmental law uh, landscape in uh, one of the lectures here in uh, Principles of Environmental Toxicology. But we get a lot of this through the Clean Air Act uh, and its amendments, which require emission limits based on maximum achievable control technology. There were changes uh, in 1995 and 1997 for medical waste uh, incinerators. Uh, the Clean Air Act and RICRA, the Resources Conservation and Recovery Act, uh, do authorize uh, regulation of emissions uh, from facilities that do burn hazardous waste. Some of this hazardous waste is chlorinated, and therefore the potential for formation of dioxins and PCBs uh, uh, and byproducts uh, from combustion is there. Uh, typically, what we find is uh, a 499.9999% reduction uh, uh, in terms of uh, what's allowed out of the uh, combustion stacks. The control efforts for water came about through the Clean Water Act. It manages releases through uh, risk-based and technology-based tools. 
1984 ambient water quality uh, standard for uh, 237A TCDD uh, was a guidance for state water quality criteria in the development of NPDES permits, these permits that allow for uh, people to discharge contaminants, very low level typically, contaminants into natural waters. Pulp and paper facilities were a big target because of the uh, uh, use of chlorine bleach in uh, their processes. Uh, the 1998 Clean Water Guidelines will take that down even further. This industry has been a major leader in reduction of release of chlorinated hydrocarbons into the environment. The NPDL, NPDES uh, uh, Pollution Discharge uh, Elimination System also prevents, uh, uh, places stringent performance uh, uh, on uh, dischargers because they have to come up for permit reevaluation every five years, so a new risk assessment is required. Adoption of new control technologies is also typically required. In uh, 1992, there was an MCL uh, goal, uh, non-enforcement uh, uh, regulatory limit uh, of zero, and so uh, the goal in terms of uh, discharge elimination was to eliminate dioxin uh, uh, discharge, uh, although it was a non-enforceable goal, and typically permits were written as no greater than. The Safe Drinking Water Act, which does manage uh, municipal water or communities uh, larger than 25 people, has an MCL, an enforceable level, of three times 10 to the minus eighth uh, milligrams per liter of parts per million for tetrachlorodibenzodioxin. Some of the control efforts for land came to us through RICRA and also through Superfund, which is a circular body of legislation, and we'll go through hazardous waste management in our environmental law lecture. Uh, these came to us uh, as a result of incidents like Times Beach and Love Canal. What these two episodes in American environmental history did for us is demonstrate that we really did not have a good approach to managing historical hazardous waste, hazardous waste that might be decades old, abandoned com uh, factories, abandoned uh, waste dumps. Uh, CERCLA Superfund helped us uh, establish a federal fund to go back and use taxpayer resources to clean up that in terms of risk mitigation and protection of the public health. We have various hazardous waste identification and disposal rules under RICRA. These are sometimes referred to as cradle to grave. If you are a hazardous waste generator, you own it forever under current law. TASCA, or the Toxic Substances Control Act, authorizes uh, restricted use of dioxin-contaminated pulp and paper sludge, and so there is a management and enforcement criteria associated with paper and pulp mills in terms of managing their chlorine output and especially their dioxin output in their facilities and operations. In 1999, we had enhanced regulation to limit dioxin content of cement kilns uh, and sludge from various um, facilities associated, and these are publicly owned sewage treatment uh, facilities, and the sludge and sludge management associated with what happens again when we flush. We also have some control efforts in terms of these chlorinated hydrocarbons for various products. Uh, for FIFRA, we have, uh, this is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. There is some control elimination of certain chemicals, uh, 245T. If you remember, that's the chemical from Agent Orange and PCP. Uh, we're actually uh, banned or severely limited in terms of their application and use, uh, and chemicals do come under review in terms of the risk-benefit of their use. 
and I would uh, uh, tell you that uh, a chemical or a manufacturing process that has the potential to uh, uh, contaminate the environment uh, or the human food chain with dioxin is going to be uh, severely limited or banned. In terms of our background, environmental media, when we go out into uh, our backyards, if you will, and look around for the toxicity equivalents, uh, the concentrations uh, in picograms per gram, and again, these are parts per trillion in various environmental media, we find that rural soils about 1 to 6 parts per trillion, urban soils about 7 to 20 parts per trillion. Again, just the uh, industrial processes, uh, the incineration processes associated with urban environments. Sediments uh, can contain 1 to 60 parts per trillion. Rural air is uh, significantly lower than urban air, which contains about 0.02 to 0.2 uh, picograms per cubic meter of air. This is where we uh, focus our uh, risk analysis, risk uh, mitigation effects in terms of dioxin. This is keeping it out of the food system, since this is the primary vector of exposure. Uh, this list gives you uh, relative estimates, uh, and this is out of an EPA analysis of the total picograms, uh, TQs, uh, of a fresh weight program, fresh weight uh, in food. You can see that here off the top that uh, beef, pork, eggs, the, the uh, livestock, uh, dairy products, animal products have significant concentrations uh, relative, for example, to vegetable fats uh, uh, and uh, water. When we take a look at this in terms of percent contribution, uh, and this is uh, for children in this particular figure, uh, one to five years in terms of doing an analysis of dietary exposure, you can see that the two major segments here include dairy foods, about 30% of the contribution, uh, and animal uh, meat uh, at 35% of the contribution. And so these are the dietary vectors of exposure of dioxin intake. In terms of the body burden changes, we've uh, come a long way, if you will. Um, in the late 1980s, uh, uh, cohort analyses showed us that uh, Americans had about 30 to 80 picograms of TEQs uh, per gram of lipid, about 30 to 80 parts per trillion. Uh, the midpoint uh, was about 55 or so picograms of TEQ per lip, uh, gram of lipid. Uh, some of the high-end estimates for certain subpopulations uh, uh, may be as much as three times higher, and this has to do with uh, cultural and uh, uh, regional uh, and uh, influences in terms of dietary influences, fat in the diet. Uh, in the late 1990s, their chlorinated dibenzodioxin uh, dibenzofuran uh, PCB body burden dropped significantly to about 25 parts per trillion, and again, this is on a lipid basis. And so we're about half or uh, one-third of what we were uh, in the previous 10 years. And the big challenge that we still have with dioxins is how to do adequate risk assessment. Uh, again, the controversy of whether or not receptor binding and some of these early biochemical events uh, are uh, likely uh, or not uh, to demonstrate low-dose linearity. Uh, if they do uh, demonstrate low-dose linearity, then the risk assessment processes uh, that EPA has done uh, is uh, reasonable, um, and the probability of cancer risk uh, uh, will be significant to these very low levels uh, of uh, exposure. One of the challenges that EPA puts out is that uh, we do need to understand these mechanistic relationships a little bit better 
that uh, currently the shape of the dose response curve is only uh, can only be inferred with uh, some degree of uncertainty. Uh, and this has a lot to do with extrapolations of the low-dose data that we find in many aspects of risk assessment and dose response uh, uh, generated uh, risk assessment. Well, what this does is give you, uh, again, what I, what I hoped uh, or promised uh, for you in this lecture is a broad-based uh, background of dioxin, uh, dioxin chemistry, uh, environmental transport, uh, exposure, uh, risk assessment, uh, its clinical pathology, and some of the challenges that we have uh, in terms of managing dioxin exposure uh, in the human environment. Uh, this is an area that uh, is active in terms of uh, risk assessment research, uh, trying to understand this chemical, especially uh, 2378 TCDD and its interaction and its molecular biology. And I think we're learning much about uh, uh, interactions of toxic and on a molecular basis in, in organisms with that. And